This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today, we are absolutely delighted to be joined by a very special guest, Chris Semyonov. Chris is of Polish descent, and he's another orthopedic surgeon. You've noticed we've had a number of orthopedic surgeons because they're so close to us in the spine world. And I had the pleasure of meeting Chris uh, through some of the very fascinating innovations he's been doing in the world of augmented reality and spine surgery. So Chris, uh, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, so Chris, why don't we begin by having you sort of introduce yourself, tell us about how you started your journey into medicine and what you've been up to lately. Sure, uh, gladly. And thanks once again for inviting an orthopedic surgeon to a neurosurgical podcast. So I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to make the cut, so to speak. But, uh, you know, I uh, grew up, uh, as you mentioned, in, in Poland and grew up in a family that uh, happened to have a couple of physicians. So it almost seems retrospectively that I had no choice. I had to go into medical school. And, and some of the people that are probably listening that come from physician families also feel that there may be some pressure associated with with that. But fortunately for me, I sort of was never good at, um, at the, you know, the uh, literature side of the business. So I was uh, drawn to sciences and very attracted to all things uh, biology related from from an early age. I did the whole nerd stage with dinosaurs and sharks. Uh, uh, with me, it probably lasted a, a touch longer than it should have. And um, and then, you know, I gravitated towards medical school. And after completing medical school, I went and did a residency in orthopedic surgery at the Cleveland Clinic, uh, which was followed uh, by a spine uh, surgery fellowship at, uh, at Rush. And, uh, you know, I completed that about 10 years ago or so and have been actively working in, as a spine surgeon uh, in a university setting uh, since that time. You're UIC, correct, in Chicago? Uh, that's correct, yes. Okay. Yeah, it's very interesting because folks who are not surgeons may not know that a fair number of surgeons have uh, have side hobbies. We've tried to highlight that uh, in previous podcasts, but some of these hobbies turn into true careers, sometimes even being bigger than the role of being a doctor or a surgeon. And when I first met Chris, I was absolutely blown away by some of the things he's been doing in augmented reality. And now, Chris, you have your own company, right? That's correct. Yeah, and congratulations. I heard you've you've done very well with that. It's been a huge success, and I'll let you talk about the company a little bit later on. But tell us about how you got into augmented reality. Was it was it in a process of doing surgery that you felt like there was a better way to do it, or was this something that went even further back to when you were in medical school or college? Yeah, I think it uh, certainly started with just, once again, a general curiosity, and I'm sure a lot of uh, people in medicine are curious, and that's sort of why... Uh, we gravitate towards uh, understanding the human body. And then, you know, we pick a, a specialty that once again, is a lot of it is curiosity about finding out more or learning more about an area of particular interest. So similarly with me, when I ended uh, in orthopedics, it felt like a good spot for somebody that likes tinkering with things. And, and there was a lot happening. You know, this is early 2000s when uh, you know, a lot of new companies were being formed, a lot of innovation around the different um, type of implants was happening. And I certainly felt uh, that I, I really wanted to be a part of that. So, uh, you know, I submitted a bunch of different ideas through through the innovations office of the Cleveland Clinic. And, you know, looking back at them now, some of them were fairly naive to, to even conceptualize. But I guess my point is that I was always uh, the one that was interested in, in trying to do something either on my own or 
simply do it because I felt that um, that whatever way we were doing things, whether you know an instrument or an approach, uh, could have been done better. And once again, this is you know not to say that that's the case, but but my point is that uh, I was interested in doing that. And then um, to answer your question, how I gravitated towards augmented reality. So um, it's predominantly as a result of failure. So a lot of these things that I was working on, quite frankly, didn't make much sense, uh, either from a business perspective, a regulatory perspective, or just from a, you know, just doesn't work kind of perspective. And the other bit of it is that as I was kind of on my tail end of my residency, it felt like the space was very crowded. Right. I mean, it used to be it seems like you could go to a hardware store and pick up a couple of items and then, you know, sort of transport them into the operating room and, and you know, have a big success uh, and obviously simplifying things. But, you know, on the implant side, things were pretty crowded by the late 2000s. And I felt like I needed to pivot um, to something where there's more more of a blue ocean versus a red ocean, as they call it. So, you know, I started working. Uh, with a uh, with a robotics company, still as a resident, and uh, they actually had some ideas that we wanted to do together, and that really sort of opened my eyes to the field of uh, of software-based surgery, computer-assisted surgery. And the more I learned about it, the more I appreciated that that really has not been much happening in that field in terms of the software part. So a lot of people were focusing on the cameras or you know, making instrumentation better and making things more accurate. And, and that's, I think, the, the right thing to focus on at that time. But, you know, then uh, I, I felt that this was an area where I could uh, where I could maybe contribute. Uh, the biggest problem was I didn't know anything about software or anything about coding. Uh, so now uh, fast forward a little bit, a couple of years into my time at the University of Illinois. And I said, well, you know, how do I enter this field not knowing anything? Well, the best thing to do is to partner up with somebody who happens to know all about software or, uh, or you know, not so much uh, about the, the medical side. So, you know, my contribution was this uh, medical-based knowledge uh, and uh, my partner's uh, contribution would be the software. So I used a very um, uh, famous tool called Google Search and uh, I literally typed in augmented reality Chicago into the search thing and a number of things came up. But on the first page was a guy named Christian uh, Luciano who happened to be at the University of Illinois uh, focusing on mixed reality, artificial, intel artificial intelligence and, and haptics and all the things that I thought I wanted to get involved with. Furthermore, you know, Christian was working on surgical simulation for lumbar puncture uh, and, and other spine-related applications. And the best part about it was he was about 30 yards away from my office. So I'll talk about serendipity. Uh, there was a guy that's been doing all this stuff for a number of years, literally down the hall from me, and I never knew he existed, right? So, um, but uh, but that's sort of how we connected. I, I literally just cold called him and said, hey, you know, I, I see you're doing a lot of interesting stuff. Do you want to meet up? And uh, at the time, he was working on some surgical simulation uh, product. And I said, you know, this is, uh, this is fun and, and great, but, you know, we need to be in the operating room. Uh, not to say that you know surgical simulators are a waste of time, but but I really felt that I wanted to be in the operating room with with these technologies, and sort of that's how we started. And as you can imagine, um, you know what where we are today and where we were then are, are two different two different zip codes. But um, but that's the sort of the genesis of me getting into software. Sure. Now, Dr. Sheminov, in in talking about 
as you said, your path from where you started to where you are today in terms of your interest and application in these technologies. I saw you did a spine fellowship at, at Rush, my own program. I was yes. curious, was that the, the orthopedic or the neurosurgical spine fellowship? So I was uh, on the ortho side. Okay, that makes sense. I, I was just curious if anywhere in your career path in spine training you had brushed shoulders or, uh, or come in contact with any neurosurgeons because, as you said, the orthopedic background naturally puts you in a field of, of tinkerers, as you said, with all the mechanical implants and devices and really the mechanical mindset of orthopedics. And I was just, as, as you were talking, I was contrasting that with the neurosurgical approach to surgical devices, where often now in our spine surgery, we have these mechanical applications, but more so with the cranial side of things, we have this software and more techie sort of devices, mm -hmm. things like navigation and more software-based things that I, I thought you might have been exposed to at that point. But um, having gone through the story of how you got to where you are today in terms of your company and and this augmented reality uh, product, why don't you just tell us and our listeners wh what what is it that you developed? Um, what is it used for? How does it work? Just give us a summary about what we're talking about here. Yeah, so just from a very basic perspective, uh, you know, if, if uh, I tell people, if you remember one thing and can sum it up in one sentence, what it is that we have done over the last, let's say, seven years, it is we have taught the computer anatomy. Right. So we really focused on using software to enable the computer to recognize and label images uh, on a scan uh, properly. Right. So since I was in spine, I was focusing on, on spine. And as you can uh, picture, you know, getting a, a scan either preoperatively or intraoperatively uh, is a common thing to do. And then as we sit here today, most of these scans are interpreted by humans, right? So that's what we go to medical school for. That's what we residency and then eventually gain experience as, as attendings is there's a scan presented to us. And based on all that knowledge, we say, okay, that's the pedicle or, or that's the interpretable disc or that's a nerve. And, you know, what do I do with that? And how do I act on that information? So that's all computed, uh, so to speak, in our brains right now, right? But... I wanted to do a little bit of a different approach. And I said, well, why can't we have the computer recognize all these structures as a foundation? So to understand the anatomy, understand the relationships, understand what's what. And as a result of that, once we teach the computer anatomy, you can do a lot of other things, right? You can do preoperative planning. You can do uh, warnings, alerts. Uh, you can help with guidance. You can say, well, don't go there. That's, that's a dangerous area. Uh, so that was sort of what we focused on for most of my time uh, as, as running this company. And, and I felt that, you know, we were pretty good within four or five years of starting that journey and teaching the computer to recognize a number of anatomical structures on a number of different types of scans, number one. And then two, which is obviously very clinically relevant to recognize uh, those structures on a whole wide variety of different pathologies. Now, you know, Dr. Semenov, it's, it's fascinating because I've had a chance to actually see this technology, but on a podcast, people don't always get the feel. So just so so our listeners who are interested, they can go look at this. This is called Holo Surgical, spelled H-O-L-O, -O, like hologram, surgical. And it's fascinating because I tried it out in the lab during the spine section, and it's, it's like you flip down this screen, and then you can have like x-ray vision almost, right? And you know, it, it, it really is, uh, it boggles the mind how, how, how far we've come in terms of technology that you can actually look into someone's body and see the anatomy. But it's not just the seeing, like you said, it's actually 
the computer is learning about the anatomy uh, from various patients and getting smarter, I assume. And so if that's really the case, then the potential applications of this in surgery are, are not confined by specialty or anatomy or field, right? And so I would imagine this could be used in any field of surgery, but why spine surgery to begin with? Right. So uh, you correctly pointed it out, Mike, it's a, it's a principles based approach. So whether the, we apply these principles, you know, in the cranial space, spine space, the hip, the knee or, or the liver, uh, you know, the principles will remain the same. Now there's nuances and challenges, soft tissue versus hard tissue, etc. But, you know, the, the general approach is the same. If you want to have the computer help the doctor and help the patient, the computer has to understand what the anatomy uh, it's right. So um, uh, th- that that opens up a lot of opportunities, as I said. And the reason we are doing spine, one of them is sort of a natural thing for me because you know I, I complete a spine fellowship. But just as importantly, spine is a good proof of concept because of the tolerances uh, that uh, are allowed. And those tolerances, as you know, are not that great. And this is not to pick on my orthopedic colleagues in hip surgery or knee surgery, but you know, if you're a couple degrees or a couple of millimeters off in the, in the hip replacement world, I still think you can get the patient a very good outcome. As we know on the spine side, you know, a few millimeters is the difference between success and, and catastrophic failure where somebody may have a neurologic injury. So it's also a good use case where if you prove it out in the spine, I think you will be happy with the outcomes you get in other uh, areas. You know, that's a very interesting aspect where you talk about that tolerance for error when applying any technology, but particularly a new technology like this, which might be used for navigation or guidance intraoperatively. I wonder um, when you're talking with your patients before surgeries and any case where you intend to use this, do you talk about the different technology that you might be using in a given case? Uh, do people come to you knowing that oh, this, this is a new technology that improves the accuracy of my surgery? Um, or, you know, in, in these cases, do you just consider it, I'm a surgeon, this is a tool that I'm using, and you just have your normal preoperative conversation with these patients? Sure, sure. And obviously, we use a lot of different tools that have a lot of, um, you know, applications throughout the surgical procedure. You know, I can just tell you my flow is generally to inform the patient of the steps of the surgery. And, you know, if there's a, a critical uh, thing that's being used, whether it's an implant or, or some type of a device, then that patient, you know, has a general understanding of it being used. Uh, you know, patients obviously come from all walks of life and uh, and how we approach them is important. So to, to make sure there are no barriers to communication or understanding of what they think we're doing, um, you know, has to be uh, tailored. As far as this specific um uh, device that we just described, you know, the, the device is as of today, not FDA cleared. So it, it's not being used in the operating room. We're targeting the four, fourth quarter of this year for that. Uh, but, uh, you know, I do believe that with any new technology, you know, it's, it is on us to make sure the patient understands that uh, such a such a device is being brought into the operating room. And I think it's it's something we should be proud of that we're using a technology that we feel can help the patient. And whether this is, you know, our company or whatever else company, uh, you know, we we should definitely highlight the fact that we're we're um, armed with as many of the cutting edge tools to to deliver a successful outcome. Yeah. So if, if you were to think about what you're doing, it's really, it's fascinating to me because if you step back even five or 10 years, I imagine the amount of um, 
data processing that has to happen for this to be successful is something that has only more recently arrived, right? So if you step back, you know, like five, 10 years and you had this great idea in this company, it probably would not be able to do anything close to what we're seeing today. But then now going forward, you know, 10 years from now, if we apply Moore's law of, of, of engineering or data science, um, what do you see coming? Like right now, I can see that this is a technology that lets us put in, let's say, screws with the with the computer guiding us, maybe even a robotic component. I'm not sure if that's what you're, you have in mind. Mm-hmm. But the idea is you can get safe placement of, let's just say, musculoskeletal implants, right? But what is what is on the horizon as your ability to, to, to process data just exponentially increases here? Yeah, no, that's that's a great point. And, and I agree with you, you know, I would love to say that, you know, I'm, I'm here presenting to you a novel idea that, you know, I came up with on some morning in 2013 while having breakfast. But, you know, the reality is a lot of these concepts have been around, I don't want to say for centuries, but definitely for decades, right? The problem has always been Uh, as you pointed out, the lack of the right type of computing power, the right type of software architecture. And, you know, about the mid-decade, I'd say, you know, 2014-ish or so, 15, you know, there's this confluence of, of factors that enabled a lot of these things to happen, right? So we have uh, uh, very fast graphic uh, graphic cards, which are not only fast and small, but also relatively cheap and accessible. Combining this with a lot of architecture for, for software that allows you to run these graphics cards in a desired fashion, once again, enables small teams of, uh, of uh, developers to do big things, right? So I think it's a very fascinating time to be around if you're interested in software and and processing medical imaging and doing uh, doing you know big data type of stuff. Uh, simply, the tools are there and they're cheap. Uh, now to the future part, you know I do think that uh, as you as you correctly pointed out, you know these things will only get cheaper and faster and more ubiquitous and and our ability to use them will be more and more simplified. So even uh, less sophisticated developers can participate, which is which is excellent. Uh, you know, you don't want this thing to be at some research lab and, and one of the big institutions where there's three people in the world that can run it. Um, but in the future, I do believe that these technologies will uh, spread rapidly outside of the operating room and will actually enable us to select the right type of patient for the right type of procedure without much human involvement, which is somewhat controversial from, you know, the the ethical perspective and others. But, you know, if you have enough data and you have enough samples, uh, you know, you should be able to identify uh, those individuals on a personalized basis that will benefit the most from from a universe of known treatments. Now, Dr. Shemyanov, I uh, I think with today's conversation, we we face one of the common curses with our show, where there's a rich bounty of topics that we can discuss with with our guests today. And so, I, I think we would be remiss, however, if we ended this conversation without touching on another very important uh, aspect of your practice and your career, which is your global surgery work. Um, so maybe if you could take a, a few minutes and just tell our listeners about your global spine outreach program and the work you do outside of the United States. And uh, just let our listeners know what, what that work entails, um, what, what you do in other nations, where you go, and, and perhaps even how people could get involved and help. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I appreciate you bringing that up. So, you know, my journey with doing, uh, I, I guess some people would call it missionary work or some people call it outreach work, started when I was a resident. And, you know, I was very fortunate that there were like-minded individuals at the Cleveland Clinic that would organize 
these types of trips. Uh, you know, my first trip was to Uganda and East Africa in 2007. I've been there about four or five times since that on a sort of an annual two-week thing where we go and try to not only treat patients surgically, which uh, which is very important, but also try to help the local doctors and de- to develop you know the right types of programs uh, to make sure there's a continuity of care and, and their ability to uh, to manage that. So you know, education is a huge component of that and global spine outreach. And you can go to the website globalspineoutreach.org. It's a very uh, long <laughs> word, but uh, but on the website you can see what this is all about and a number of locations and a number of fantastic individuals that you know sort of come together to make this happen. Uh, you know, as you can imagine, because of the the pandemic, the, there has not been much activity uh, secondary to, to travel restrictions. But you know, hopefully we'll get started here uh, soon with, with more trips. And you know, I uh, went uh, like I mentioned to Africa, but also uh, did some trips in Eastern Europe. Uh, the group does Mexico and South America, like Colombia, and. And uh, as you can imagine, the need, uh, you know, far outstrips our ability to uh, to help. So help is always uh, very desired. Absolutely. You know, it's always for us with the show, it's always a privilege to be able to highlight any kind of charitable work that our guests do and and help put uh, some degree of spotlight to that to, to help the patients everywhere in the world who, who need the, the care. I wonder if you could, as we wrap up here, just thinking about the conversation today as a whole, I wonder if you could comment briefly on your experiences going to these other nations around the world in these various healthcare settings and just, you know, we've been talking about technology and devices and just comment briefly on what the different level of surgical and medical technology you see is around the world, ranging from uh, any nation you visit to do charitable work and outreach work versus at home uh, in your laboratory or home program where you have this cutting edge technology we're discussing about trying to bring into the operating room. Yeah, I mean, the disparity is huge. You know, the first time I was in East Africa, uh, the operating room was using ether anesthesia. Right. So wow. you had a guy sitting with this accordion looking machine literally hand pumping ether into the patient and you know as the patient exhaled there was a tube going outside the window you know the whole room was filled with ether vapor which you know has fairly significant side effects despite the fact of being super flammable and you know that was my first real contact you know imagine a a young resident coming from the cleveland clinic to ether anesthesia which was last used in the united states in the 1950s so, you know, that just portrays the the wide gap. And, you know, we try to do everything to improve that situation. But, you know, it's not like you can just drop off some brand new machine and, and, and let them figure it out. So there's a whole supply chain issue, you know, who fixes these things, who supplies the gas, how, how are the anesthesiologists trained, etc. So, you know, it's it's a big, tall order uh, to uh, to help bring people up to speed, knowing that we can, right? I mean, there's so much money in the world, and you know, the way we direct it and expand it. Uh, you know, I don't want to get into that on this on this podcast, but but you know, I think we can do a nicer job of, of helping uh, a lot of people by by focusing our resources. So, you know, big big challenge, and then of course, you know, you come back home and you kind of look around you and see all the things that you have. Uh, whether it's at home or, or at work in, in the hospital, and you're just so grateful for it, right? So I always tell people, like, I think every U.S. citizen should spend 24 hours in East Africa uh, at a hospital, and then, you know, I think we would all be a lot better off as a society. What a beautiful sentiment. And as you say, I, I will echo the fact that that should make us all feel grateful for where we live and the kind of hospitals we have access to, both professionally and when we become patients. Um, but also, I, I think that that highlights 
uh, strongly the fact that at the end of the day, hopefully the vast majority of medical care and surgical care delivered is not a function of the toys and tools that we bring to the table, but uh, the people in the room. And so, again, we applaud you for uh, spending your own time and energy and resources going over there to treat patients and helping to train up people who will stay there to, to treat the patients uh, who remain. So uh, I think that's about as much time as we have for this conversation. Dr. Shemunov, we really appreciate your time coming on the show today and uh, sharing your experiences and uh, this exciting new cutting-edge technology in the field of augmented reality with our listeners. Uh, thanks for coming on the Neurosurgery Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.